Lord, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that there are some parts of it that are harder to understand, some parts of it that are more interesting to us than others. But God, I thank you that all of Scripture is inspired and that all of it is profitable, that it reveals your character and your will for the world and what you're doing. And so I pray that you would uh, open our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears, uh, that we would read even these uh, three genealogies with that in mind, that these lists of names help us better understand who you are. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, we are kicking off our Christmas series, the quintessential Christmas series that every church does in December, and uh, having the privilege of preaching the first sermon in that series, I thought, uh, I definitely want to kick things off with a bang, talk about something that will get a lot, of, a lot of attention, keep people engaged, and so I thought, what's more interesting than biblical genealogies? Uh, why wouldn't you start there, really, when you think about it? Um, and so, uh, admittedly, you know, we probably don't think of uh, genealogies as the most interesting or inspiring parts of Scripture. Um, shockingly, I've never seen someone print a genealogy on a coffee mug and, you know, put it in their kitchen or anything. Uh, we typically go for maybe a little more interesting passages. Uh, in fact, I was, I was actually watching a, a pastor on YouTube this past week give an overview of the Gospel of Luke. And when he came to Luke chapter 3, where Luke lists his genealogy, and we'll look at that today, but the, uh, when he got to that section, the pastor literally said, okay, now bear with me, this is something we just have to get through. Uh, which I thought was actually unfortunate um, that that would be what he was saying. Um, however, that comment probably represents the way most of us feel when we come to a long list of names in the Bible. But at the same time, I guess that most of us would also recognize that where we come from says something about who we are. That's why our society has become a little more obsessed with these websites like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. It's because we feel like we have a clearer understanding of ourselves in the present if we have an understanding of who we are in the past or where we come from. And even probably when you're, when you're telling someone your story or when you're getting to know someone for the first time, I bet one of the questions that you almost always are going to hit on is either something like, where did you grow up or what was your family like? It's because even though it might not determine who we are necessarily, our identity is on some level attached to where we came from whether that's geographically, like the kind of state or the city that we grew up in, or even if it's relationally, the kind of family, uh, the family tree that we have and where we are in that family. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that as the Gospels in the New Testament tell us who Jesus is, three out of the four actually include some kind of Genealogy, sometimes even in the very first words of the book, as we see in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's the first thing that Matthew wants us to know as we're reading 
his perspective on the life and ministry of Jesus. But unlike maybe the genealogies that we find on Ancestry.com or 23andMe or whatever, the Gospels and the Gospel writers are not trying to just give us this cold, hard historical data as though they're just kind of neutral record keepers, right? Like we just want to give you the facts. Here's all the generations, you know, from Jesus until the beginning of time or whatever. But instead, each of them are actually writing in order to present Jesus in a very specific way. And they're presenting him from a very specific perspective. So that when we take all four of these gospels together and we compare them to one another and we think of them kind of collectively, we don't just learn about Jesus, we believe in Jesus. That as we read the, the New Testament Gospels, it's not just that we kind of fill our mind with facts about Jesus, but we are actually motivated to worship Jesus, to see him as the one true Son of God. In other words, the content of the Gospels, and that content includes even genealogies, isn't meant to be thought of as just historical but it's also meant to be seen as deeply theological. It's painting a picture, telling us a story that in the end is meant to evoke worship by bringing us face to face with Jesus, the Messiah. And so what I'd like to do for the, the rest of our time this morning is look at these three genealogies across Matthew, Luke, and John. And I want us to consider how what might seem like just a boring list of names, which is probably how we typically think of genealogies, actually helps us better understand who Jesus is and why we should worship him. Each of these gospels is going to give us a unique portrait of Jesus or a specific angle. And they're going to do that by emphasizing one aspect of who he is while also providing some of the theological implications around that as well. And, and my goal is to emphasize both of those realities as we look at these passages, not just considering who Jesus is, which we will consider that, but then also considering why we should worship him because of who he is. So starting in the Gospel of Matthew, then, as we read through his genealogy in uh, chapter one. And even as we read through really the, the whole gospel, the portrait that Matthew is painting for us is Jesus as the son of Israel. And he does this in some, in some pretty creative and kind of subtle ways. There's a lot of, uh, I would just call them Easter eggs in the, the gospel of Matthew's genealogy. And uh, I'm not going to, uh, you know, go through all of those points or anything, but you could honestly even just YouTube this week the Gospel of Matthew's genealogy and probably find, I mean, 30-minute presentations on all the, you know, kind of unique things that, that Matthew's trying to point out, just literally just using a list of names. It's, uh, it's honestly, it's incredible. But in general, what I do want us to see is that Matthew organizes all of the ancestors of Jesus into three main sections of 14. And each of those sections is actually going to cover a specific era or a specific period in the history of Israel. 
In other words, what, what Matthew is doing in his genealogy isn't just listing a bunch of names haphazardly or exhaustively even. In fact, we're, we're, when we compare him to, Matt, or, uh, compare him to Luke, we're going to see Matthew actually leaves out certain names for specific reasons. What he is doing is he's summarizing the entire history of Israel, from Abraham to David, David to the exile, and then exile to the present day with Jesus. And he's using each of those eras or each of those periods to tell us something about Jesus, to tell us who he is and what he's done. So for example, Matthew starts his genealogy actually with Abraham, which is unique compared to the genealogies of Luke and John. And the reason that Matthew starts where he does is because Abraham was considered the father of Israel. So for a Jewish reader, hearing the name Abraham is basically like hearing in the beginning, right? Abraham is where the nation of Israel and the history of Israel even began. It was with Abraham that God established his covenant all the way back in uh, Genesis 12. And part of that covenant was that God would give Abraham offspring who would then ultimately bless all the other nations around them. And this is actually why, why most of the people in Israel were expecting a Messiah that was basically a political ruler. They were expecting someone to come who would make them a great nation again, who would make them basically a, a world superpower. But what Matthew is trying to get at is to understand, at the, or get us to understand at the very start of the gospel, is that it's Jesus who's the promised offspring of Abraham. In fact, that's, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to emphasize in Galatians chapter 3 when he says that uh, through Abraham did not come many offsprings, but there came one offspring who is Christ. And so it's Jesus who will now be a blessing to all the nations. It's, it's Jesus that is that promised offspring from the line of Abraham. He's going to bless all the nations. He's the, the promised Messiah who's brought the blessing of salvation to the world. That's the, 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 the first kind of point that Matthew's making in his genealogy, just by listing uh, the right names in the right order. But second, not only is Jesus the offspring of Abraham, he's also the promised king from David. Uh, this, this is a theme that Matthew really hits on in the middle of his genealogy. You, you know, when you read through verses 1 through 17, you see that middle section is all royal lineage, all coming from the line of David. But, you know, what's interesting is that that's actually a theme throughout the entire gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's not just in the, the first few verses of the book. Matthew is constantly coming back to David and the line of David, and he's connecting that concept to who Jesus is. Jesus and David are supposed to be linked together in our minds. And in fact, you, you even see in the genealogy, David comes up not just in the middle, he's in the beginning, the middle, and the end of that genealogy. He's mentioned multiple times throughout verses 1 through 17. 
And actually, most commentators agree that the, the most likely reason that Matthew's actually kind of organizing his genealogy the way that he is, that he's structuring these, these three groups of 14, is because if you take the name David in the, in the Hebrew, which is how, you know, how most Jews would have thought of it, was, was in the Hebrew language. If you take David's name and you assign a number to the, the individual letters in David's name of D, V, D, Hebrews, uh, or Hebrew does not have vowels, uh, what you get is 464. And so when you add all those numbers up together, what you get is 14. And so again, if you're, if you're Jewish, which that's who Matthew's gospel is being written to, it's a, it's a Jewish audience, and you read this genealogy carefully and intentionally, what you really see is basically Matthew screaming the name of David over and over and over and over and over again. He is constantly saying, David, Jesus, David, Jesus, David, Jesus, right? Like he wants us to connect Jesus to the line of David. And so from Matthew's perspective, it's not, it's not just that Jesus is a religious leader, like a, a prophet or priest, though he is those things. But what Matthew is wanting to emphasize is that Jesus is king. He is the king that's come from the line of David. He's come to rule and to reign. He's come to enact justice and bring peace in the world, to instill the law of God in the hearts of his people. He's come to establish an eternal kingdom that will not pass away. This is the Jesus that Matthew is presenting to us from the very first verse of his gospel all the way to the last. Jesus is the one who was promised to David back in 2 Samuel 7, where God told David that I will establish your throne forever. So Jesus is the promised blessing from Abraham. He's the rightful king from David. And then finally, we see that he's the righteous one who obeys God's will perfectly. So Matthew spends the entire last section of his genealogy highlighting Israel's exile in Babylon. That's kind of the last period that this genealogy uh, covers. Uh, and, and I think pretty much every person in Israel would have seen the exile in Babylon where, where the entire southern kingdom of Israel was literally, you know, pushed out of their own country, pushed out of their own land and brought into Babylon. Everyone would have seen that as like the lowest point in Israel's history. Not only was it embarrassing from a national perspective, because it would be embarrassing to, to be conquered by another nation, to be pushed out of your own land and, and, and pulled into the land of the nation that's now conquered you, but even from a religious and spiritual perspective, it came, the exile came as a result of Israel's ongoing rebellion against God. And so within a Jewish culture, you couldn't, you couldn't make reference to the exile and not at the same time be thinking about and talking about the sin that Israel was guilty of. And, and the only hope that an exiled Israel had during this period was this continued promise from the prophets of God that God was going to provide a Messiah who would redeem and restore God's people from exile 
who would, who would cover the sins of the people so that they could be right before God, so that they could return to the land. This is, this is basically in, in really, really simple terms. This is the, the message of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. It is documenting the rebellion of Israel, the consequences of that, but the promises of God that he would one day show his faithfulness through this messianic figure. And so as Matthew wraps up his genealogy and he presents the life of Jesus in in the early parts of his gospel, he, he basically picks up where those prophets left off by making the claim that Jesus is that promised Messiah. And this is exactly what the the angel says to Joseph in in verse 21 of Matthew 1. He says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And, And the way that Jesus will save Israel from their sins and deliver them from exile is by very literally reliving Israel's history, but being perfectly obedient to God through it all. And so in Matthew 2, we see Jesus actually coming up out of Egypt, just like Israel came out of Egypt during uh, the Exodus. But unlike Israel, Jesus will submit to God's will, even to the point of death. In Matthew 3, we see Jesus coming up from the baptism waters, just like Israel came out from the Red Sea that God had parted. But unlike Israel, Jesus pleases God in his faithfulness. He doesn't grumble and complain like the Israelites did after God had spared them from the Egyptians. In in Matthew 4, Jesus enters the wilderness for 40 days, just like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But unlike Israel, Jesus obeys God and does not fall into temptation. And so in all these, all these kind of very creative ways, Matthew is pointing out that, yes, Jesus is the son of Israel. But even more significant, Jesus is the true Israel. He's, he's the better Israel. He's in all that Israel did, yet remains perfect through it all. Where, where Israel was disobedient, Jesus is obedient. Where Israel rebelled, Jesus submits to the will of the Father. Where Israel was overcome, Christ is victorious. But, I mean, what's, what's Matthew's point in saying all of this? I mean, it's all, it's all interesting to see the, the kind of historical connections that are being made between Jesus and Israel and how, how they're doing a lot of the same things. But again, Matthew isn't just a historian that's recounting the past. He is a theologian that is trying to interpret the past, to to call us into worship because of what God has done and because of who Jesus is. And so here's the, the theological significance or implication to all of this. It's that God is faithful. In fact, even even though his name never actually comes up in this genealogy, it's God that's the main character in Matthew's genealogy. He's the one who's who's working through all the stories, making sure that his plans are accomplished, making sure that his promises are fulfilled. 
Even when Abraham and Sarah were too old to conceive children, it was God that promised them offspring and then gave them Isaac. Even when David was being chased by Saul, which is you know, something that we're, we're reading about even right now as we go through 1 Samuel. And then even when he was disobedient and he took a wife for himself that was not his own, God continued to protect David and he preserved David's throne. Even when Israel was rebellious and they abandoned God, God did not abandon them. But instead, he gave them a deliverer, Jesus Christ. And what's even more amazing is that for those of us who belong to Christ, for those of us who are now in Christ, Israel's story is our story. Even though we're unfaithful and we fail to trust in God's goodness. In Christ, he extends promises of blessing to us and he calls us the offspring of Abraham. Even though there's nothing about us that would actually make us worthy of God's attention, there is nothing in and of ourselves that would make us necessarily attractive to God. In Christ, we now become citizens of God's kingdom and heirs with Christ the King. Even though we're rebellious against God, even though we are far from him, that, that we have been exiled because of our sin, Christ restores us and he forms us into his own people. That is why he's worthy of worship. It's because he's faithful. And friends, that's just the first genealogy. We have two more to talk about still. I can just see your excitement. So the second genealogy that we'll look at, uh, we'll look at in uh, Luke chapter 3. And you're, you're welcome to turn in your Bibles there as we go through this. For the sake of time, I actually won't read this passage. But when you do read it, you're going to see that there's actually a few major differences between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy. So one, one example of this would be that Matthew's genealogy includes 42 generations, but Luke's genealogy includes 77, uh, which actually is not uh, necessarily that unusual uh, for, for someone to basically condense or summarize someone's genealogy. That's really basically what Matthew is doing here. He's leaving out certain generations in order to kind of prove this point of uh, saying that Jesus is the son of Israel, that he's the offspring of uh, Abraham, and he's the king uh, uh, from the line of David. But what is kind of unusual is that from David all the way to Jesus, almost all of the names are different between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's. In fact, it's even to the point that both of them actually list different names, different people for Joseph's father, which would have been Jesus' grandfather. Uh, so in, in Matthew's gospel, Joseph's father is called Jacob. In Luke's gospel, it's Heli. And of course, there's been a lot of attempts to kind of reconcile all these differences. Uh, I want to spend time listing all of those out. Um, there's uh, one link that we've given you actually in your sermon application guide, if you use those this week, that you can kind of learn more about some of the potential responses to these differences. But 
the, the one that I think is probably most likely and most plausible, makes the most sense, is that Matthew presents Jesus' royal or legal ancestry, which is why he's tracing all those kings from the line of David. He's trying to point out that, that Jesus is, is a rightful heir of the throne because he comes from the line of David, and out of David come all of these kings all the way up to Christ. But Luke traces Jesus' uh, biological or physical ancestry. So you have very, very literally exactly who gave birth to who in order to get to Jesus. So again, you're, you're more than welcome to research all of these potential solutions this week and then tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, but more than anything, what I want us to remember is that just like Matthew, Luke is writing out this genealogy, not just to give us a history lesson, but to make a theological claim about Jesus. So everything that he's including is intentional and meaningful. It is not accidental or haphazard. He has he not just thrown names in this list with, with no thought at all to why they're in there. So, so when we slow down and read it with that in mind, read it with the mind of uh, Luke is trying to tell us something here about Jesus. Yes, even through a list of names, when we read it with that mindset, what we see is that just like Matthew, Luke is also painting a very specific portrait of Jesus. Not, not Jesus as the son of Israel, but Jesus as the son of man. So I've, I've already mentioned a couple kind of unique features of Luke's genealogy, but maybe the most unique or most significant kind of feature in this list of names is that unlike Matthew, who again, he begins his genealogy with Abraham, Luke actually takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. And again, Luke isn't doing this to prove he's a, a better researcher or he's a more uh, thorough writer or he's a better historian than Matthew is. What he's doing is wanting to make a connection in the mind of the reader between Jesus and then those first few chapters of the Bible in Genesis. That as we, as we read the name Adam, our memories automatically kind of jump back to all that happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they, when they brought sin and death into the world because they ate the fruit and the, and the reason that our minds need to go there, the reason that Luke is kind of pushing our minds to go there, is because when Adam and Eve fell, not only did God issue curses on the man and the woman and the serpent and creation, but, but God also gave this very important promise. In the, in the first half of Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent that as a result of his deception, There'd be this ongoing hostility or this enmity between the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In fact, as you, as you really kind of trace that theme throughout Scripture, you're going to see that run throughout the entire Bible, that there's these two sides that battle one another till the end. And it's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But the second half of Genesis 3.15 gives uh, hope, even in the midst of that curse, because a day will come, God says, 
when the seed of the woman will actually crush the head of the serpent. That even though there's hostility between these two seeds, one day God is going to bring, bring deliverance through the seed of the woman and that seed will crush the serpent. So as you read Luke's genealogy, as he starts it with Adam and traces it all the way back then to Jesus, what he's really saying is that Jesus is that seed of the woman, that God has made good on his promises. You can literally trace the seed and all the offspring starting from Adam and Eve all the way up and where you will end is Jesus. He's the one who's come to crush Satan. He's the, he's the one who's finally going to undo the curse that fell on creation in Genesis 3. He's going to one day restore the world back to what it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, I, I hope you find that incredibly interesting. Like, I'm so fascinated by all of this and the way that the Bible makes all of these connections. But, but again, Luke doesn't want to just fill our minds. He wants to move our hearts towards worship. He doesn't want us just to, to know about Jesus. He wants us to believe in Jesus. And so the, the theological implication that Luke is making here is not just that God is faithful, but he's trying to tell us that God is Savior. Long before Abraham ever came on the scene, long before those promises were made in Genesis 12, God had already made a promise to all of humanity in the Garden of Eden. That even though sin and death would absolutely enter the world, that it would corrupt all of these good things, that it would misshape what God had put into order, God promised that the curse of death would not last forever. God was going to send one man through the line of Adam who would defeat death, and his name is Jesus. And this is why the, the angel's announcement in Luke 2 is so significant. He says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, Jesus came not only as a better Israel, but Jesus came as a better Adam, as a, as a better human. He was tempted in every way, but he did not sin. And in dying on the cross as the perfect son of man, he paid the penalty for the sin that came as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, the sin that you and I now share in today. Because Jesus came as a man, man can now come to Jesus and experience the forgiveness of our sin. That is the real meaning of Christmas. And it's the real meaning of Luke as well. It's what Luke wants us to know about Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. 
And that brings us to the last genealogy we'll look at today, which is uh, in John chapter 1. And I would guess most of you would read this chapter and probably uh, assume, really, there's no genealogy in there at all, because uh, there's no list of names that John gives. There's no generations that he kind of works out, no family tree that he presents to us. But I'd argue that the fact that there is no list of names, that there is no long list of, of generations of people being the son of, you know, fill in the blank, actually only helps prove John's message, John's kind of portrait that he's painting uh, of Jesus. And that is Jesus as the son of God. So Matthew has presented him as the son of Israel. Luke has presented him as the son of man. But John is going to now present Jesus as the son of God. In other words, while it's, it's perfectly true for Matthew and Luke to talk about where Jesus came from, John is also sure to remind us that it's just as true to say that Jesus didn't come from anything. Here's how John starts his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then when you skip down to verse 14, John goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There's no, no parents in those statements, no grandparents in those statements. There's no aunts or uncles. And it's not that John is denying Jesus' humanity. Okay, I want to be clear about that. But, but what John is denying is this idea that Jesus is only human. Because even though Jesus laid in a manger, the manger could not contain him. Even though he, he came from the line of Adam and Abraham and David, Adam, Abraham, and David have come from Jesus. He's the eternal God who is beyond space and time, and at the same time has actually entered into space and time in the form of a human. And the reason that that's important, the reason it should stir our hearts to worship is because it means that God is not only faithful, he's not only savior, but it means that God is with us. A few days ago, I was listening to uh, an interview with uh, N.T. Wright. And if you don't know who N.T. Wright is, he's um, a New Testament scholar, probably one of the most influential New Testament scholars that's alive today. And as I was listening to this interview, he was, he was talking about the book of Romans, because that's kind of his uh, area of expertise. And he said something that I thought was very interesting. He said that the biblical story of salvation isn't about how humanity can come to dwell with God in heaven, but how the God of heaven has come to dwell with humanity here on earth. In other words, as you, as you read the Old and New Testament, the goal in God's redemptive plan isn't to get everyone to heaven. It's to bring heaven to earth, to restore all that was good in the Garden of Eden so that God can once again walk among his creation just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden. 
And the way that God accomplishes that mission, John says, is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in human flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Not, not with us in the sense that he's, he's for us, like he's just got our back, like, hey man, I'm with you, I'm on your side. No, but he's, he's with us in the sense that he literally has borne our flesh. He's with us in the sense that he's experienced the brokenness of this world, just like you and I experience it. He's breathed the air that we breathe. He has walked the paths that some of us have walked. He became us so that we could become righteous before God. That is what it means that Jesus is God with us. He's the son of Israel, the son of man, and he's the son of God. And so let's worship him today with everything that we have, because that is true. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you have not left us in our sin. You haven't left us in a state of rebellion. But Lord, you've given us Jesus as our hope and our deliverer. That in him we find reconciliation to you, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done, because of who he is. That he is the better Israel, he's the better Adam, that he is the son of God, the perfect righteous one. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in Jesus, what you're doing in Jesus, and what you will finally do in Jesus when he returns. We look forward to that day. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.